may have heard about the Farmhouse Tavern in Toronto. The restaurant recently received a lot of positive attention about reducing food waste, including a feature on the BBC. My name is Mike Von Masso and this is Food Focus. From time to time, you come across a business that does things differently. This restaurant is one of those businesses. In this episode, we talk to Darcy McDonnell, the owner and GM of Farmhouse Tavern, about food waste reduction, which is really an output of a bigger strategic decision he made when he opened. We understand what that decision is and what it means for the broader service and food experience that people have at his restaurant. He provides insight into an underappreciated and poorly understood sector critical to the food system, restaurants. Before we get to the actual conversation, I want to remind you that if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. You can get it wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And also, leave us a review so that other people can discover the podcast. Our audience continues to grow, and things like reviews help people find the podcast, moves it up on the list of recommendations wherever you get your podcasts, and helps us to grow. And now, without any further ado, let's go to the conversation with Darcy. Well, hello, Darcy. Thanks for taking the time today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for making time for me. Well, I, I'm excited uh, to talk to you today. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the news we've seen about your restaurant, the Farmhouse Tavern, about saving food waste. And I think there's some other things that you do there that are that are pretty interesting. But before we do that, why don't you take a, a minute and tell us what is the Farmhouse Tavern? Uh, so Farmhouse Tavern is a uh, gastro pub in Toronto, in the West End, near High Park and the Junction. It's, uh, I think, a quaint little space that's uh, reminiscent of a rural Ontario farmhouse with sort of a tavern side, uh, what I call the farmhouse side, so two dining rooms that are both the same size. One has a bar in it, one has an open kitchen in it, and there's a little private dining room in the back, and they have a nice... Uh, west-facing sunny patio. So all in all, we try not to get that full because the kitchen can't handle it, a little kitchen, but we do have 131 seats, so it's, uh, it's a decent-sized space. Good, and and your business model sort of reflects the neighborhood you're in too, doesn't it? So you're not open every day of the week. No, so when we first opened the restaurant in June of 2012, which I guess is our eighth summer at the restaurant right now, back then the neighborhood was really in transition with uh, a lot of sort of Long-time residents moving out, houses selling to young families, a couple condos going up a couple blocks away, and there was no um, no daytime traffic, no worked in that neighborhood, and the streets were kind of empty. There's no pedestrian traffic, nothing like that. So I thought, gosh, it's often tough to get you know draw people there on a Monday night when there's nobody on these streets. Yeah. At the time, I was hoping the restaurant. My wife was pregnant with our first child. And there was a fear of sort of always being stuck at the restaurant as well. Uh, and I had a family coming. So those two factors of a low low traffic flow as far as pedestrians go and stuff. And the family at home, I thought, let's, uh, let's see if we can make this work on a couple less days a week. And what would be our busiest days? We identified those as being, you know, Thursday to Sunday, ideally. Or we thought they'd be anyway. And see if we could make it work just doing four days a week. I had this belief that I could... You know, if I were to struggle to draw, let's say, 20, 20 people on a Monday night, I could probably convince, you know, 10 or 12 of the 20 to come to us between Thursday and Sunday if they really want to eat there. Uh, so if you move those guests over to later in the week, then you do the math and say, well, is it worth opening for eight people? And the math 
doesn't work out. Well, and and lots of lots of restaurants should be doing that math, right? I mean, I think that that, that one of the things I think is really cool is that you did that that thought process and and not only from a business perspective but from a personal perspective and that overlaps to your staff too which which we could talk about later being being more predictable and easier to manage but lots of restaurants make money on busy days and then lose money on less busy days and then become a break even restaurant and so i i think it was relatively unique and innovative that you said well no i think we're, if we're only going to have eight people or ten people in the seats, it's just not worth opening up. Yeah, especially like I said, when you do the massive sort of shifting over the guests that we're going to come anyways later in the week, then it's kind of clear. But I think restaurants, there's always this pressure to sort of be open and, and you know, we're only going to make revenue if we're open kind of thing. Yeah. But there's there's very few industries or sectors in the business world that do that. If you, I think one of the great examples to look at for restaurants is what movie theaters do. You know, movie theaters uh, only show a movie twice a day at very specific times in very specific theaters, and their pricing varies from a Tuesday to a matinee to uh, a new blockbuster that doesn't accept coupons, so on and so forth. And then, uh, depending on those days, sometimes the price of their popcorn and drinks are different. If you want to do the VIP experience, you pay more for the convenience of having your own seat or getting your ticket in advance. There's, I think there's lots to be learned from uh, one example being movie theaters, airlines obviously do that, hotels do stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit more of uh, we got to be a bit more confident sometimes in our product and, and uh, take the bolder initiatives. I couldn't agree more. And you and I have had that conversation, have had that conversation before. And I'd like to come back to that. Let's go back to what we originally talked about: is th- that in addition to being a really good restaurant. <laughs> And uh, I'm biased. I've been there and, and eaten there. But uh, in addition to being a very good restaurant, you've also gotten some press for being really good about food waste, at reducing food waste. BBC News and others have, have covered your restaurant, which never hurts, and said you've done some smart things about, about food waste. What have you done? Yeah, with the four days a week, obviously, there's uh, presents different uh, challenges and opportunities. Um, I personally hate using a freezer or unthawing things or freezing things. I'm not a huge fan of, of leftovers when you can be cooking with something new and fresh. And I think, you know, any sort of chef or cook with their salt, so to speak, would be more excited and engaged with a fresh delivery of produce or proteins uh, versus, uh, you know, unwrapping uh, something that's been wrapped in saran or stuffed in a liter container. Uh, when you start your day at work. So I think from a mental point of view, fresh food is more engaging for the cooks working with the food. From a guest's point of view, you're having fresher food. And it, uh, on the flip side of it, from you know business efficiencies, there's a little more work because you're starting from scratch on Thursdays, but there's also sort of less work sometimes at the end of the day, the chalkboard menu, which is one of the features we have, or on a Sunday night when we sell out of everything. There's less to put away, less to repackage, less to wrap, less to try and freeze, less to try and uh, hold on to and salvage for when we reopen the restaurant later on. So so on Sunday nights, you blow out your food inventory then? Yeah, so being closed Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the idea of Sunday night is to really have nothing left to, to pack up or, or try and salvage. 
Um, so we do hourly specials starting uh, from 3 o'clock in the afternoon right through until 10 p.m. Uh, we do brunch until 3, so from 3 to 4, we do a deal on mimosas, trying to pull out the magnums of bubbles we have open and the orange juice and stuff to get rid of that. Yeah. Caesars are a pretty popular brunch thing here in Toronto and in Canada. Uh, so we have a Caesar special uh, from 4 to 5. We'll give the kitchen a little bit of a break while we do the drink special so they can have a quick break and tear down brunch and set up for dinner kind of thing. Yep. Uh, then we kick off with dollar oysters from five to six, which kind of gets people in and, and in that eating mode and gets them in for, you know, butts and seats for an early dinner. Mm-hmm. From six to seven, uh, we're doing six dollar drafts, whatever stuff is on top. We carry three draft beers in a cider. And if we blow a keg, we don't open your top in your keg. So I don't want a keg sitting there top for four days and not being used kind of thing. So you might end up by the end of that hour where there's only two of the four selections available. Uh, or you might fill out of oysters, for example, at, you know, 10 minutes to six, there's no oysters left, which is, again, the idea of it all. Yeah. From seven to eight, we do half-price appetizers. So most people are sort of stacking up on apps and maybe instead of having two entrees, they're having four appetizers. But again, it helps us achieve our objective of getting rid of all those, the bulk of those dishes. From eight to nine, we do eight dollar wine. So anything that's open by the glass, we sell at a reduced price of eight dollars. And again, not opening new bottles of wine to just then stuff a cork in and leave it in, you know, in the fridge for four days. Um, and then at nine to ten, in our last hour, we do any entrees that are left are half price. So you're, you are selling, you know, the one thing that people sort of forget about from a business point of view is, oh, well, you know, all these discounts. It's, how you make any money, but it's only one specific special per hour. So if someone's having a half-price burger at 9.30, chances are pretty good they had a full-price appetizer and a full-price pint of beer with that. Yeah. And yeah, maybe they got a glass of wine at $8 at 8.45 in the evening, but when they reorder a second glass of wine for a meal at 9.30, well, that glass of wine is $13 again. So the formula has worked out quite well for us, and it has been fortunate enough to uh, draw some good media attention with it. Yeah, it's 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 a cool idea, and and would Sunday have otherwise been a slower night? And does it help you drive traffic? So meet sort of two objectives. It does. It definitely I think drives traffic. We sometimes get a bit of a more of an industry crowd, or maybe a younger crowd, sort of the, the last hour or two of the evening. People that might not be working Monday morning, people have a flexible morning ahead of them the next day. Yeah. But you know, when we're already there, we knew Sunday brunch would be busy for us. That was always the plan. And we thought, you know, you can sort of do brunch and then pack up and go home at five. Or if you're already there anyway, let's make a go of Sunday night and sort of spend the whole day there versus working maybe on a Wednesday. And, you know, if you did, I sort of said, well, we can do, we can do Wednesday night and just Sunday brunch or do a whole day on Sunday. And the whole day on Sunday found a way to make that work for us. That's cool. And so you also referred earlier to your uh, Blackboard menu. So there is no printed menu in your restaurant. What does that do for you? Uh, the chocolate menus give us lots of flexibility. We can sometimes, for example, you know, comes into play on a Sunday night on occasion where maybe we have, chef says, I got, you know, three steaks left that are 12 ounces. And there's one 10 ounce steak left. So we'll put those three steaks in the board first at X dollars. And once we sell out, I might just change the 12 ounce you know, erase the board and say 10 ounces and then lower the price accordingly and then sell that last steak kind of thing. Or there's occasions where we have a protein-based, maybe a duck pasta, for example, duck and mushroom pasta. And chef says going into the dinner service that night, you know, we have nine duck pastas left. 
And after those nine, that's all the duck I have. But we have four more portions of pasta, and we have available mushrooms. So again, we would sell those, we would try to sell those nine duck pastas, and then say, oh, now we're switching that to, it's now a mushroom pasta, and it's you know, $3 less kind of thing. So the ability to sort of make changes on the fly, to scratch things off, to change pricing if a dish changes a little bit, is invaluable, especially on a Sunday night. Yeah, so, that, that, so so it gives you that flexibility. Now you talked earlier, and and you might not want to, you might not want to talk about this, but you you talked earlier about how you you think the restaurant industry could emulate the movie industry with the chalkboard menu. You could also charge a different price for the same item on Thursday as you do on Saturday when demand is higher. Does have you have you thought about doing that sort of thing? We do it uh, a little bit in a bit of a different way. Uh, because we're starting with a new menu, not a new menu, but sometimes new dishes, or the week's menu starts on Thursday, if chef says, if chef says to me, I have three new dishes, and we look at them, we taste them, okay, we're good to go, we think, you know what, I'd like to get $15 for this appetizer. I'll likely run it on the Thursday night at $14, get a little bit of guest feedback, watch if the plate comes back empty or some stuff left on the plate, gauge people's reaction to the dish, make sure we can execute it the right way. Sometimes I go back to, you know what, chef, no one's eating that component of the dish or people seem to have devoured that and the plate was with clean, maybe it should be a little bit bigger. And then what often happens on the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we get to that price that we want to. So, you know, we charge 14 on Thursday. We really fine tune and tighten up the dish to make it even better. And then it's $15 Friday, Saturday, Sunday, for example. Well, and, and I hadn't I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't considered it. So so with the chalkboard menu, how much does your menu vary from week to week? Because uh, you don't have to have it printed. It gives the, the chef an opportunity to, the chef and the cooks, frankly, to have a little bit of variety. Now, you lose sort of maybe a little bit of efficiency as they as they roll on items. But from a customer perspective, sure, people have their favorites, but if you're a repeat customer, seeing something different on the menu is not a bad thing either. No, and I think there's, um, I think we found a happy medium. We've always used, for example, the exact same fish supplier. So there's always Jim Diggy's trout is on the menu. Yeah. But the base of that dish, whether it's uh, some kind of root vegetable or some puree the chef has made, that can change every sort of two or three weeks. New dishes on the menu, like a new appetizer or a brand new entree, maybe 20% of the menu changes sort of every week on a rotating basis. But you're always the burger has never changed in seven years. You can count on the quality of the fish fillet, but what's on the fish might be different than you had it last month. Same thing with our ribeyes. You know, it's always a dry-aged ribeye, but one week it comes with the corn on the cob in season. And then later on in the dead of winter, maybe it's a couple bucks more and it's with a side of bone marrow. So there's variety that way as well. Well, and, and and that gives you the opportunity to provide the variety and to give the chef a little bit and yourself an opportunity to be a little bit creative and, and to introduce some variety without compromising your standards or or if I'm the guy who wants to come in and eat the ribeye or the, the fish, I know what I'm getting, mm-hmm. even if what I'm getting is a little different than the last time I was in. Yep, exactly. Now, I wanted to get back before we wrap up to 
the benefits of the four-day week. And, and one of the things I hear a lot from people in the restaurant industry is the challenge of getting and keeping staff, particularly staff in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Does the predict, I mean, they're still working weekends, they're still working weekend nights, but does the predictability of a shift, I know I'm going to work from Thursday to Sunday, and I know I'm going to get Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off, does that make it easier to attract and keep staff? I think so. I mean, especially, I think, in the summertime, to know you have three days off every week to enjoy summer, to be outside, or to go for a quick camping trip or whatnot. Staff definitely uh, like that a lot. On my side of it, first and foremost, with the four days, the real benefit to me is we have a smaller team. And I always wanted a restaurant where, sorry, I should say, I never wanted a restaurant where you come in as a guest on a certain day and have the B team or the C team you know, filling the roster because the chef was off and the sous chef was off or the head bartender was off or the top three best servers were off. I wanted a restaurant where when we're open, our best staff are always there. So it's allowed me to do that. I think it's allowed us to have a maybe sometimes a higher quality of staff and good staff. I think gets good staff and, and high quality staff help attract and keep good high quality staff. So it's a bit of a self-fulfilling cycle almost in some ways. So, and, and that makes your life easier and improves the customer experience. For sure. I mean, there's less training dollars. There's more familiar faces. Uh, the team works more in sync because they're always working with the same people. Uh, there's, there's too many benefits to list. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I don't know if you anticipated those or if it came down to at the start, I'm going to have a young family. I don't want to be working seven days a week, which I think a lot of people don't realize that owners of of smaller restaurants end up doing a lot. And I don't think I'm going to make money on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And then you made that strategic decision, and now you're saving food waste. You have a probably a better customer experience because of the stability of your and predictability of your front and back of house staff. It really has per- turned out pretty well. Yeah, no, it's been it's been very good. We're very fortunate. So if you look back over the last eight, this is the end of your eighth summer. Yeah. What have you changed? What have we changed over the, over time? Yeah, so you said, well, I had a plan when I started, and it sounds like that plan has been relatively successful. What? what, what? Yeah, you know what? I don't know. There's been a lot of change. I mean, we've, uh, we've bought new equipment along the way and better equipment. We've repainted along the way and sort of uh you know this summer i changed the patio chairs out and upgraded that i did a, a whole paint job back in uh last fall to sort of brighten the place up and lighten up a little bit a little bit of a facelift but as far as the the concept uh or the sort of model of the restaurant i think i was fortunate enough to have enough time in advance of opening the restaurant to really really strategize about how i wanted it to be and how i wanted it to work and i I had many years of experience in the industry with great companies like Oliver Bonacini and Circorp and stuff like that, where I learned to trade um, over 15 years. So I really, really had a good idea of uh, what I thought could work, what, how I wanted to make it work, and I stuck to my guns. And, and for the most part, the, the model itself hasn't changed really. But that's great, and and I think you made a good point. And I was going to ask the question: is is this wasn't your first rodeo? You had a, a bunch of experience. Uh, before opening the farmhouse. And I think people underestimate, particularly people who open restaurants, people underestimate 
how tough a business it is and how you have to be really strategic and careful uh, in order to succeed. And and so I, d- I don't want people to say, oh, look, Darcy did this and this, and all of a sudden he had a successful restaurant. You'd paid your dues in the industry and thought lo- and didn't jump at the first opportunity. No, I mean, I, I looked sort of, always had sort of a keen eye to what might be the right fit. And I had a, I had a list, I had a very specific list of seven items that I wanted for my sort of dream restaurant. And I got lucky uh, along the line where I found, you know, where Farmhouse is now. When I found that space, it uh, it actually met the criteria of those seven things on my list. And that was sort of a, a line in the sand that I wanted to hold out and wait for. And again, those seven items being things that I sort of picked up along the way or, or saw along the way to be very effective or very important to me. And sometimes in those cases, it's, it's a little bit of... Um, I don't know if it's bravado or confidence, but sort of the ability to stick to that vision and in some cases to hold out for it, in some cases to to push or to, you know, demand for it kind of thing. Yeah. But a concept, is, there's many, many, many components of a concept. You know, in, in the restaurant industry, there's real estate and it's music and uniforms and entertainment and food and wine and staffing and a hundred other things that are part of a successful restaurant. We have to sort of try and be pretty darn good at all of them to make it work. Yeah. So I've asked all the questions I wanted to, and and we're just about out of time. But I thought I'd spring one one last one on you. How is the restaurant industry changing? What are the big things that are changing how people think about and how they run restaurants? I think the biggest thing I've seen lately in all different types of restaurants, sort of different. Uh, levels or concepts and price points is the fact that people are eating out sort of at any given time. So in the old days, uh, lunch was at 12 o'clock. And at 1 o'clock, you could shoot a cannon through a dining room. Now, a dining room is equally as busy at 1.30 or 2.15 as it is at 12 o'clock on, on many days. And, you know, years ago, we sometimes joke that, you know, only grandparents came for dinner at 5 o'clock. And now a restaurant can be half full with young couples and their children at 5 o'clock or people that are having a quick dinner before they go to a show later at 5 o'clock. And the same thing, people are coming in to eat at 9.30 at night now and having a full meal at 9.30. Um, so I think the flexibility in people's work days and remote work and, and that kind of stuff has changed the time frames in which people come to a restaurant to enjoy a meal. And that's been a, a challenge for staffing, for operating hours. So there's a lot of factors that you have to sort of adjust uh, to account for that. But that's been the biggest thing for me, really. That, that, that's interesting because uh, I was about to say, well, that makes it easier to make money, doesn't it? Because one of the complaints I've heard in the past is, you know, I have a two-hour window for dinner and I have to get everyone in and out in that time and nobody wants to come later and nobody wants to come earlier. Well, I don't think it's necessarily getting more people. They're just coming more spread out. So I think it's actually trickier to run the restaurant. Ah. Because your staffing costs your staffing costs are higher. You have employees on longer. So instead of having someone do a two-hour shift, they're there for a three-hour shift. You're not necessarily getting more people. You're not getting more revenue. You're just... Sp- they're just spreading themselves out. Ah, okay. So in a way, it's easier to execute the service. You're not getting hit all at once. But it's stretching your labor dollars. Okay. To feed the same amount of people. Okay, yeah. So 
That, that's interesting. And I, I'm going to ask you two more quick questions sure. because I, I'm surprised you didn't, you didn't mention either one of these. <laughs> How is the demand for protein changing? Um, or is it? I mean, there's certainly more. I don't know that it really is. I think there's a lot more. There's certainly a lot more of, uh, I guess we're calling flexitarian. Yeah. People like me that would happily eat a steak, you know, at least once a week and a burger maybe twice a week. But I'm happy to have a vegan dish or, um, you know, to eat um, vegetarian for two, three days before I sort of have a craving for, for something that's a, a protein. So I don't think the sales mix that way has really changed. There's more questions about it. So people have, or people are calling and saying, you know, can you accommodate gluten-free? Can you accommodate uh, vegan? So there's more questions for that, certainly. I think across the board, I, I can't think of restaurants that really can't do that. For the most part, we've actually, you know, one thing, to be honest, I just thought of it now, uh, we recently changed the layout of the menu. It used to be appetizers and main courses mm-hmm. divided in two. We now divide the menu into seafood and veg- vegetarian and meat and cheese. So if a table of four sits down and someone in there is a bit nervous because they're on a strict vegan diet or gluten free or something, maybe they're any kind of food allergies or something they're really watching, I think the way the menu is laid out now, can put someone at ease a little quicker because they can see a category that, okay, I'm going to find something I need there, as opposed to sort of coming to this farmhouse, which I think we've always had a really good balance of, of uh, meat, uh, proteins, and vegetables. But people sometimes still call and say, you know, we don't eat pork. Can we come to the restaurant? Like, we don't even serve pork. We have bacon at brunch. That's it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think the, the change we made in laying out the menu has, uh, I think, put people that are maybe sometimes nervous or not sure if they can get what they want uh, at ease because they can identify and see it, draw it out of that chalkboard faster. That's that's really interesting because I had just the other day I had, an, I had a discussion with someone about the, the changing layouts in grocery stores and we're seeing sort of the natural food aisle and the international aisle and we're seeing sort of mm-hmm. areas of the grocery store because there is so much choice out there, areas of the grocery store where you can go and get a particular type or group of products and make it easier for that customer to find what they're looking for. Yep. And you're saying, you know, that it makes sense to do that on a restaurant menu too. And and I hadn't thought about that. That makes a ton of sense because we've got so much dispersion in what people want. Like you say, gluten-free, vegetarian, vegan. Yep. All of those things. Now, in a restaurant, you can't offer all of those things, but but you can you can give enough choice and make it easy to make those choices. Yeah, like I've always said, you, you can't be everything to everybody, but you have to have at least something for everyone, and you can't lose the vote. Right? If a table of four comes in, and you know, for lack of a better example, maybe you know, grumpy grandpa uh, only wants a burger. Well, if the burger's not there, the family leaves, or one person in the family. Pescatarian. We got to have something that they can see and go, okay, cool. I'm, I'm good to eat here. Yeah, that works for me. Um, so you never want to lose the vote when the table sort of looking at a menu, deciding to come in here or to go next door, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. That's an important thing as well. Exactly right. And 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 a big a big part of that is to have something. If you want to keep the group, you have to have something there for everybody, or the group leaves. Yeah, exactly. Well, Darcy, that was awesome. I uh, I learned something and. I'm looking forward to coming back and seeing you again. And thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. As 
we wrap up another episode of Food Focus, I thought I would just take a quick moment to thank Molly Gallant, who really does the heavy lifting in producing this podcast. She does all the hard work. I get to have the interesting discussions. Thanks, Zachary Von Massow, for the original music. Before we go, I'd like to remind you again about our foodfocusguelph.ca website. Check out our blog, updated at least weekly. Check out previous versions of the podcast. Check out our trends report. And get in touch with us, foodfocus at uoguelph.ca. We'd love to have you send us comments, ideas, suggestions, and just to interact and hear what you're thinking about. Finally, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us wherever you get your podcast as this helps other people find us. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.